0: and I pray that you are ministered to during this time of our reflection from our Bible study. Throughout our journey in the book of Revelation, we've seen so much in this unveiling of Jesus. Well, we're in chapter 19 now, and out of 22 chapters, you know what that means. We're getting close to the end. We've read of these beautiful visions of Jesus and his glory and worship in the throne room of God, and we've read Jesus' letters to the churches. And we spent a lot of time learning about events of the Great Tribulation. The plot has been thickening. We've been waiting in suspense, anticipating the climax of the story. It's that point in a movie where you're on the edge of your seat and everything is about to change. And it's finally here. The time has come. We finally come to the moment that Revelation has been anticipating and building up to. The marriage supper of the Lamb and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the moment when all of the anticipation becomes reality. Now, as we consider this, I want you guys who are married to think back to your wedding day and all of the anticipation leading up to it, all of the planning, the details, the nerves, the expenses, the joy of the moment when you said, I do. And finally, after dating and pursuing and loving, when the two became one flesh. On the day of my wedding, I remember time going both so slow and so fast. There were some moments where time seemed to stand still. I remember waking up that day. My first thought was like, whoa, I'm getting married today. Now the bride is usually up early getting ready all day. But for me, I was like, what am I supposed to do as I wait for the ceremony? Should I work out? Should I watch TV? Should I take a nap? I remember thinking, what do I even eat for breakfast? I mean, it's my wedding day. I'll always remember it. And sure enough, I still recall eating Honey Nut Cheerios that morning. Then I remember the time that it stood still as, as my bride, Michelle, she walked down the aisle. My lip quivered and tears welled up in my eyes. And yet at the same time, everything went by so fast. After months of planning, the ceremony and the reception flew by in a few hours. All of that anticipation became reality. It can seem so long and yet so fast. And in our study in Revelation, we've spent a lot of time in the tribulation period. As we've read about all that's going on with the wickedness of the world, the dragon, the antichrist, the beast, we've been waiting with anticipation when righteousness will reign and Jesus will come back. From Revelation chapter 6 to 18, The scene has been on earth, and we've spent a lot of time learning about the great tribulation. With the saints in Revelation 6.10, we ask, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? And now in chapter 19, the time has come. The scene shifts to heaven, and it's an amazing vision of worship and praise, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's taken so long, and yet at the same time, it comes so fast. From Genesis 3, with the first sin in the garden, which brought about the curse, to then Genesis 4, with Abel's blood crying out to God from the ground for justice. Throughout all of human history, where Romans 8 says that creation waits with eager longing, the time has finally and fully come, where the scripture declares, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It is here, the Lord Almighty reigns, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and Jesus returns in his righteous rule and reign. In our last study, chapter 17 and 18 show how the judgment of God comes. Babylon is fallen, and the world weeps. But in chapter 19, Jesus is exalted, and heaven rejoices. Verses 1 to 5 describe this amazing scene. And one single word captures the heart of this text, and that word is... Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This word is a transliteration of the Hebrew for praise the Lord, which is used many times in the Psalms of the Old Testament. But what's so interesting is that this is the only time the word is used in the entire New Testament. And in this heavenly praise, it's used four times. What an amazing scene here in heaven. This great multitude and the 24 elders and the four living creatures are worshiping in response to what God has done and will do. This is a response to the command of chapter 18, verse 20, which tells heaven to rejoice over God's righteous rule and the coming of his kingdom. He had judged Babylon and avenged the blood of his servants. It's in anticipation of what will soon take place, which is the second coming of Jesus, his millennial reign, Satan's final judgment the great white throne judgment, and the establishment of the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. What a wonderful word. And we join in with this heavenly praise and say, hallelujah. Of course, you can say it in all different tones and accents. You can even sing it all super high-pitched in the famous hallelujah chorus. But it all means the same. Praise the Lord. As we reflected on Revelation chapters 4 and 5, With worship in the throne room of God, let our corporate worship, week in and week out, be reflective of this reality, that God is to be praised. He is worthy. We're not captive to Babylon, but we are children of God. Praise the Lord. And the arc of human history is leading to this ultimate end, which we see in the rest of chapter 19, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb and the return of Christ. Verses 6 and 7 say that the great multitude cries out like the roar of many waters and the sound of thunder. Just think of the sound when you're next to a giant waterfall or when thunder shakes your house. It's overwhelming. It's deafening. And they cry out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The long-awaited day of the marriage of the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church, has come. This is what Genesis to Revelation has been pointing to the entire time, all throughout Scripture, pointing to a marriage made in heaven. Marriage is defined in Genesis 2.24 as the two becoming one flesh. This truth finds its ultimate fulfillment then in Ephesians chapter 5. It's in this passage that Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 and then gives commentary and says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, the love, intimacy, and commitment of a husband and wife for life ultimately points to the love, intimacy, and commitment of Jesus and his bride, the church. It's been said that as God made man in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. All throughout scripture, God's relationship with his people is described like that of a covenant-keeping marital relationship. That's why it's been observed that marriage is a living drama of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and the church. You see, marriage is a copy of an original It's a metaphor of a greater reality. The mystery has been revealed. It's God and his people, Christ and his church. This, our marriages, is about that, God and his people. This means that we understand our own marriages in light of this eternal truth, which is why Paul tells us that husbands should love their wives as Christ loves the church and that wives should respect their husbands as unto the Lord. And in light of this, I want to encourage us brothers to strive to understand the gospel in a deeper sense through our marriages in the way we love and serve and forgive as husbands and wives. Let us be mindful of what our marriages ultimately point to, what they're all about. May our marriages display an even greater love relationship pointing to Christ and his church. As we see this true marriage made in heaven, It's interesting to note that the marriage of Christ and the church parallels the several stages to a wedding in ancient Jewish culture. It's been observed that first, there's the selection of the bride, and this was fulfilled when God the Father chose the church to be his son's bride. Next is the betrothal of the bride and groom. This is fulfilled when a person is saved and knows Jesus. Then there's the presentation of the bride and groom which is a time of festivities and then the ceremony. And this happens when the church is raptured and is presented in the Father's heavenly house. And finally, there's the marriage supper or the feast. It's the celebration. And here we are. The time has come to celebrate. It's what Jesus spoke of so often. Like in Matthew eight eleven. he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 19, verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This includes all of the Old Testament believers and the tribulation saints. Man, what an event that will be! Amazing. You see, today it's the ladies who often pay attention to all the details of the wedding. And, well, the guys, they mostly like the free meal. But I assure you, you'll pay attention to everything at the marriage supper. Of the Lamb. And this should be our focus. Like a bride waiting for her wedding day, we look forward to that day. And as the text says, the bride has made herself ready, and the fine linen, bright and pure, that she is clothed, and what she's clothed in is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see, our good works, they're only a result of the, the work that God has done in our lives. And our preparation is found in trusting and following Jesus. And we are presented glorified and spotless before the throne, well, because of the righteousness of Jesus, what he's done for us. And we see here that this beautiful bride is pictured in stark contrast to the iniquity of the Babylon prostitute in this godless world. And so finally, we see that this ceremony and this celebration coincides with the start of all that's to come, the millennial kingdom which stretches throughout that thousand-year period and is finally consummated in the new heavens and the new earth, as chapter 21, verse 2 describes the bridal city. It writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The description of this marriage, God and his people, simply concludes with the declaration of verse 9, these are the true words of God. The most anticipated day in history has finally come. What Jesus taught us to pray is finally being answered in its greatest reality. God's name is hallowed, his kingdom is come, and his will has been done. Heaven is opened, and we see Jesus in all of his glory. And we see him as the warrior king who wages war against his enemies. The second coming of Christ refers to the historical, personal, visible, and bodily return of Jesus to Earth. The clear focus of the second coming is on Jesus's complete and total victory over evil. It's been anticipated for two thousand years, and what an amazing reality we read about! He returns with his people and his angels and defeats his enemies. He judges Satan and sin and the system of this world, and he is victorious. Consider these descriptions of Jesus in this passage, in his second coming, which is just beautiful, and consider it especially in light of his first coming. He first came riding on a donkey in humility, and now he rides on a white horse in holiness with triumph and victory. He was full of grace and truth, and he is faithful and true. He came to seek and save that which was lost, and now in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes cried tears over sin and unbelief. Now they are a flame of fire with piercing vision. He wore a crown of thorns, but now a ruler's crown with many diadems of royalty and sovereignty. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, now clothed in a robe dipped in blood, for he died on the cross and he comes now to bring judgment. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He is the word of God who now comes with the armies of heaven as the conquering king. He came as the suffering servant, and he is the king of kings and lord of lords. In his first coming, he came to suffer the wrath of God for sinners. And now in his second coming, he comes to establish the kingdom of God for his saints. As the final words of Revelation say, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And we shout in agreement and say, Come, Lord Jesus. But, but the enemy says otherwise. The last and great empire in human history led by the Antichrist gathers to make war against Jesus and his army. But the beast and the false prophet, they're captured and they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. And Jesus defeats the rest by the sword that comes from his mouth. Oh, consider, contemplate, reflect on the power of, of the Word of God. The one who said, Let there be light and created the world. The one who said, Peace be still and calm the storm. The one who said, It is finished and died for our sins. He is the one who speaks and defeats his enemies. Our response should be that of Psalm 46, verses 6 to 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. These future events that we've read about, the heavenly praise, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the second coming of Christ, they should greatly impact our current reality today and how we live. Just this morning, I was reminded in a surprising way of how Jesus will triumph in the perspective that it gives us. You see, it was in the middle of the night where my six-year-old girl, my daughter, bursts into our room and says, Daddy, I had a scary dream. So I comfort her, I hold her, and then she goes and tells me about her dream. Well, she says her dream was about the scary part in the Chronicles of Narnia, where it's the fight between Aslan, the lion and the evil white witch. But apparently there was an epic plot twist because somehow she said characters from the book, if you give a mouse a cookie, were thrown in the mix. I don't know how that works together and that's besides the point. But anyways, she said that the fight was loud and that it scared her. And if you know the story, the lion represents Christ and how evil will be overcome by good. And so I told her, honey, Remember, Aslan is on the move, and his roar is louder. His roar is louder. As C.S. Lewis writes in this book, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. We know that the ferocious lion of the tribe of Judah is coming again, and we long for his return. In conclusion, consider the words of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, which encourages us how to live in light of Jesus' return. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all.